So we are in this series called When Things Fall Apart, a study of the life of Job. And if you've been tracking with us, you know that we have been talking about how suffering is inevitable. There is no book in the Bible, uh, perhaps no work of world literature, that faces the questions of suffering with the same honesty and realism and wisdom as the book of Job. And there are kind of two questions that someone in suffering often poses, often asks. One is the why question. The other is the how question. So the why question is, why is this happening? The how question is, how do I bear up under it? How can I bear it? And last week, we attempted to look at the why question. This week, we're going to attempt to look at the how question. Uh, if you've been with us, then you remember that Job is a book in the Bible about a man named Job who is a devout man. He's a pillar of his community. Suddenly, he loses everything. His family, his health, his wealth, his prosperity, his social standing. And on that day when things fall apart, a very important question that every sufferer asks is how do you bear suffering? How do you get through the inevitable stuff that will come to you? And the question, uh, how do you bear suffering, part of the answer to that is comfort. Through comfort. When we suffer, we need comfort. We need sources of strength in times of pain. Of course, when it comes to comfort, there is a limit to what comfort does in the face of pain and suffering. If you think about a shock system in a car, a shock system does not remove the bumps from the road, but it does allow the car to face those bumps and not completely and literally fall into pieces. So when things fall apart, this is an important question. In a similar way to that shock system in the car, we have to have sources of comfort in the face of suffering. We have to have sources of strength when we go through suffering. And really just practically speaking, the answer to our how question, how will you bear the pain, is in part comfort. My hope is that around here we would be developing sources of strength along the way that we draw upon in those times of crisis and in those times of pain and suffering. Now, usually, the first place we turn for comfort is to our friends, to other people, to our loved ones. And Job, in this story, has three friends who show up in his moment of suffering and pain. Basically, in this entire book, chapters 3 to 30 are all about his friends saying things to him and him responding. So the bulk of this book is his friends coming and offering comfort. We're going to look at what his friends have to say, and in doing that, we see that they have a good start, a bad ending, and then we're going to talk about a better way. So first of all, a good start. Job's friends, they start out really well. This is what the Bible says. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz, the, Eliphaz, well, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, 
So they heard about all the troubles that came upon Job. They set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Job's friends get a very bad rap for all the terrible things they say, but we have to start out by admiring the friendship that these guys have for Job. I mean, they hear of his grief and they come. They don't shrink away. They cry out with him. They tear their robes. They sit in the ashes with him and mourn. We're told they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and nobody said a word because they saw how great the suffering was. Those are good friends. And when we suffer, we need companions to comfort us. And Job's friends initially fill that need beautifully. They are, in a sense, better than Jesus' disciples. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? He's anticipating his own suffering. And he says to his disciples, would you come and pray while I pray? But they abandon him to sleep as he prays and cries out to God. So Job's friends, they have a very good start. But once they open their mouths, they have a bad ending. They do a terrible job of comforting Job. In fact, Job himself calls his friends miserable comforters. This is what he says. I have heard many things like these. You are miserable comforters, all of you. So let's look at the bad comfort or bad counsel from one of Job's friends named Eliphaz. Eliphaz says this to Job in the face of his pain. Consider now, who, being innocent, has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. Basically, his friends heard him calling out to God, crying out to God, and what this friend Eliphaz basically says to Job is stop it. Stop all your blubbering. Stop crying out to God. God's not going to listen to you. And why? What's his rationale for that? He says, because who being innocent ever perished? What Eliphaz is saying, he's saying, innocent people don't perish. Upright people are not destroyed. So if you're in trouble, then you are reaping what you've sown. And this is really, it's like an argument from agriculture. He's saying, if you walk into a field full of wheat, someone has sown wheat there. And if you walk into a field with a lot of barley, someone has sown barley there. And if you walk into your life and there is a bunch of pain, you have sown destruction to warrant that pain. That is what he is saying. That's his rationale here. So Eliphaz is saying, if you have trouble, stop crying out to God about it. Stop blubbering. Pull yourself together. Figure out what have you done wrong here. Examine your life. 
Figure out where you have not had enough faith, where you're not praying enough, and then fix that, and everything will be fine. So this is a bad ending. Eliphaz is a miserable comforter. But let's look deeper for a minute and ask this question. What is wrong with Eliphaz's comfort? What is wrong with his counsel? I mean, isn't it also a biblical principle that we sometimes reap what we sow? So what is wrong with his, isn't that true? If that is true, what's wrong with his counsel? Here's what's wrong with his counsel. It doesn't grasp the biblical complexity of things. And some of you might think that's a funny thing to say in church because some of you might think, like, if you believe in the Bible, you don't believe in complexity. You believe in pat answers. And I understand why some may get the impression that Christians prefer pat answers. Have you ever um, heard the term bumper sticker theology? This uh, bumper sticker theology is basically a theology that is stated in little quips that are usually more clever than clear, and they don't always contain a lot of sound theology, but they, ca- they do fit on a bumper sticker, and so they try to be persuasive. Things like, maybe you've seen some of these, are you following Jesus this close? Or maybe you've heard, God is my co-pilot. Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. God allows U-turns. Now, you could take bumper sticker theology and go out to lunch and have a very lively and interesting conversation where you could refute each one of those statements theologically. And often when you're driving behind a bumper sticker that says something, you kind of want to do that just because of the smugness that it feels in this moment of your life. I mean, if we really believe that we live in a suffering, hurting world where evil exists, bumper sticker theology applied to pain is totally insensitive. Now, bumper sticker theology may contain a bit of truth, but it's often smug, simplistic, and in the face of pain, it's totally insensitive. This is what Eliphaz does to Job. You reap what you sow. Examine your life. You must have done something wrong. God, on the other hand, does not give us pat answers. The Bible does not give us pat answers. Actually, the Bible gives us this multidimensional understanding of reality that is more nuanced and complex than any other worldview I know. So when Eliphaz says, like, stop it, stop crying out, get it together, figure out what you did wrong, not only is that insensitive, it's denying the complexity of the nature of suffering. It's denying the complexity of human nature. It's like a reductionistic view of both human nature and suffering. So Eliphaz is essentially putting a bumper sticker on this complex problem of suffering. In a sense, he is saying, Job, your problem, it is spiritual. It is spiritual and it is moral and this is all there is to human nature. But the problem is we're not just spiritual beings. We're also physical beings. We're also relational beings. 
And when it comes to the how question, how do you bear up under suffering? How will you endure? Pat answers do not help because they deny the complexity of the situation. Great example of this in the Bible is in 1 Kings 19. Prophet of God, Elijah, becomes totally depressed, totally despondent. He absolutely crashes. And an angel of the Lord comes to him. And the angel of the Lord does not say anything, says nothing, does not preach a sermon, does not write a blog, does not give a bumper sticker. Do you know what the angel of the Lord does for Elijah? Cooks him a meal. Says, take a nap. Then he wakes him up. He says, oh, your strength isn't back yet. Here, eat some more. Sleep some more. Because, see, we're not just, phys- we're not just spiritual moral beings. We are also physical, and we are also relational. And even the angel of the Lord focuses on the physical need for food and for rest. See, if we were just spiritual, moral beings, if that was all there was, if we only had a spiritual, moral nature, then it would make sense that the first thing you do for a person who, say, like Elijah, is depressed, is you get out your list of things, you know, your questions, you get out your lecture materials, And you say to them things like, so have you prayed in faith? Have you confessed all your sin? Like, have you thanked God for everything? Um, Is Jesus your (laughs) co-pilot? Have you claimed all the promises? Now, here's the thing. Some Some of that is in the Bible, right? But it's reductionistic. And we're not just spiritual beings. We're also physical. We're also relational. So maybe if you're Elijah, you need a nap. You need to eat some good, healthy food. Maybe if you're Elijah, you need a hike in the woods or a walk by the ocean. Now, let's say, if you're in Colorado, we're tempted to think a hike in the mountains will cure all woes, right? So in a similar way, we have to remember, we're not just physical beings either. We're also spiritual beings. We need worship. We need meaning. We need purpose. We need relationships. Sometimes what you need most is a hug or for someone to say they love you. See, religious people are going to tend to reduce everything to spiritual and moral, so you're always going to get a lecture from them. Their answer to pain is always some version of pray more, be more diligent, analyze this more. But the Bible doesn't do that. The angel of the Lord cooks depressed Elijah a meal, tells him to take a nap. Now, it might seem like I'm kind of picking on religious folks, but secular people do this reductionistic thing in a similar way. Secular people will tend to see, say, something like depression as totally biochemical. So they just give you a pill. That is just as reductionistic as always giving a lecture about needing more faith. See, God never reduces things like that. The Bible teaches there's this complexity to human nature and to human suffering. So if Job teaches us anything, it is to avoid pat answers. You can't just wade in and deal with pain and suffering and despair and depression as if it all comes down to just one thing. 
There's a well-known preacher and writer. His name is Lewis Smedes. I've quoted him before, and he speaks a lot to this. Even though he was brilliant and accomplished and devoted to God, he suffered from a deep sense of inadequacy and sometimes deep depression. And at one point in his life, he, he actually stopped preaching because he felt so incredibly inadequate. And he said that God came to him in this deep depression through two avenues. One was a three-week experience of utter solitude where he heard God promise to hold him up so vividly, and as he put it, he felt lifted from a black pit straight up into joy. Okay, so this was one avenue in which God came to him. He said during that season of deep depression, the other avenue in which God came to him, I'm just going to read this to you. He describes it this way. He says, I have not been neurotically depressed since that day, though I must, to be honest, tell you that God also comes to me each morning and offers me a 20 milligram capsule of Prozac. He clears the garbage that accumulates in the canals of my brain overnight and gives me a chance to get a fresh morning start. I swallow every capsule with gratitude to God. I love the picture he paints. And I know we're living in a time where big pharmaceutical companies are under scrutiny, and yes, we need wisdom in these matters. And I also know, historically sometimes, Christians have viewed taking drugs as a sign of a weak faith. A weak faith in God. But what if Prozac, for example, might be not a substitute for God, but a gift from God? Like, what if refusing might be spurning his hand just because of pride? Like, maybe God is present in wise doctors and medication that makes the synapses and neurotransmitters work right. And maybe weakness is refusing, out of my own blindness or my own stubbornness, the help that God is offering. Like, what if medicine, while not an end-all, be-all to the comfort that we need, but what if it is one of the avenues of comfort, one of the sources of strength in a medley of things God's provided for his creatures. So Job's friends, they start out, well, there's a bad ending, so let's just talk for a minute about a better way. Kate Bowler is a professor at Duke Divinity School, and at the age of 35, she had a little boy less than two years old, she's diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. It's chronic, not curable, and she goes on this experimental treatment. And while she's in the midst of this experimental treatment for stage four colon cancer, she begins writing. And because of the, her situation, it's a sense of urgency, she sends off some of her writing to the New York Times. And one of her articles, uh, it goes absolutely viral. Millions of people read it. Thousands of people share it. And she begins receiving these letters from people, strangers, responses 
from people. She said the responses she received sometimes felt worse than the cancer itself. And she organizes the unhelpful responses into three categories. She says there were people who were, you could call the minimizers, and then there were the teachers, and then there were the solutions people. And she went on to write a New York Times best-selling memoir that she, she titled the book this, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. And in this book, she talks about all this mail that she received when diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. She talks about the kinds of things people, strangers, wrote to her in the middle of her pain. Here's what's interesting to me. I want to read you just a few of the things that she talks about hearing from people. And just notice, Job, the book we've been looking at all month, is the oldest book in the Bible. Her memoir came out in 2018. Listen to how similar some of these things uh, sound. So how similar this sounds to the comfort of Job's friends, the miserable comforters. Okay, so number one, she says, a hilarious number of letters basically start with, you think you have it bad? Like, listen to this. Followed by a litany of complaints. Uh, Second, she says, a few people want me to cultivate spiritual acceptance. The world is a place of suffering, they write. There's a garden full of weeds. We need to tend it as best we can. Third, she says, most everyone I meet, this is interesting, most everyone I meet is dying to make me certain. They want me to know, without a doubt, that there is a hidden logic to this seeming chaos. Number four, she says, Christians want me to reassure them that my cancer is all part of a plan. A few letters even suggest that this is God's plan that you get cancer so you could write the New York Times article. Number five, she talks about a man from Idaho who writes these words. Why are you dying? Question mark. Some people might think it's it's cruel for God to let you die so young, but the answer is simple and crystal clear. God is a just God to let you die. This is the consequence for your sin. Some people say to her, I'm sure you're feeling very fortunate for all the time you've had with your two-year-old and husband. She said there's um, others who will say, at least I'm at a top-rated medical facility. At least I'm trying the new drug. At least I have financial and intellectual resources to deal with it. Can't you just hear how the miserable comfort that we still give one another likely stems from our own anxiety to sit in the unknowns of pain and suffering with someone? That was true with Job's friends, and that's still true today. Minimizers, teachers, solutions people. I don't know about you, but I'm guilty, 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 right? We've all done this. Kate Bowler says, the hardest lessons 